Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. So our last episode was a big panel discussion on all of the elections in 2024 and how AI and misinformation could impact them. I'm recording this episode once again from Davos, Switzerland, where I'm at the annual World Economic Forum. And I had a chance to sit down on the main stage with the Prime Minister of Greece, Kyriakos Mitsotakis. So we wanted to bring you an extra episode this week. As incumbent leaders the world over struggle in the polls, Mitsotakis returned to power in 2023 with a resounding victory. He is a center-right politician, but he believes in progressive social values. Under Mitsotakis, Greece has had a surprising economic revival. While Greece was once known as the sick man of Europe, Greece's economy has bounded back in the last few years, with its growth outstripping that of the rest of Europe. Athens has also been able to shrink much of its debt load, which originally put it in crisis more than a decade ago. Greece is a member of NATO, of course, so it has an important role to play in Russia's war in Ukraine. It also has interests across the Middle East, not least through its massive shipping industry, now under threat through disruptions in the Red Sea. Mitsutakis and I chatted about all of this in our live main stage discussion. As always, if you like the podcast, rate us or share it with a friend. You can also watch us live on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to ask questions too. As you know, use the code FPLIVE for a discount. All right, let's dive in. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. So first of all, I just want to say congratulations because uh, you won a resounding re-election last year um, and The Economist magazine went as far as ranking Greece as sort of the country of the year for the way in which you've helped turn it around from the sick man of Europe to uh, a country that's growing faster than other countries in the Eurozone. I want to talk about that and maybe extract some lessons, but I want to do that in a minute. And I thought I'd begin with the Middle East first. Greece has a huge shipping industry. We have a crisis in the Red Sea right now. I believe a Greek ship was attacked uh, by Houthi rebels. Um, But this is a much bigger crisis than that. How worried are you about escalation? We are all quite worried about the possibility of a regional escalation. And of course, what is happening now uh, in the Red Sea is particularly concerning, not just for the Greek shipping industry, but also for international trade in general at a time when we're trying to bring uh, inflation down. Any disruption uh, in supply lines, of course, uh, can only make this uh, effort, this global effort by central banks, uh, that much more complicated. we have, uh, as, as Greece, I think, taken a very measured position when it comes to the Middle Eastern crisis. Uh, we 
obviously initially very, very clearly supported Israel's right to um, uh, self-defense, uh, insist on the release of hostages, uh, but at the same time also made a very, very clear distinction between um, Hamas as a terrorist organization and the Palestinian uh, people. And as much as we defend rights, Israel's rights to defend itself, uh, we are you know, uh, increasingly concerned with the plight of innocent uh, uh, people uh, in the Gaza Strip. And that is why, as a country which is relatively close um, to uh, the conflict area, uh, we try to do our best to make sure that humanitarian aid gets to Gaza uh, as effectively as possible, which, as you know, is still uh, a very, very difficult uh, uh, challenge. Uh, and uh, at the same time, I think we are considered by all involved parties as uh, honest brokers. Uh, we, we talk to everyone. And uh, as soon as uh, this uh, conflict comes to an end, uh, I think the time will be ripe for a serious discussion uh, mm. about uh, you know, the political solution to this problem, which has been around for many, many uh, decades. Mm. You know, you said recently that you recognize that Israel has the right to defend itself, but how it does so actually matters. As a friend and ally of Israel, and you went there right after mm -hmm. the attacks, as an honest broker, do you think that Israel's response has been disproportionate? Everyone should be concerned with the fact that uh, uh, we have more than 10,000 um, children um, uh, who died as a result of this uh, um, uh, conflict. And I don't think that it is in uh, uh, um, Israel's strategic uh, interest to create a new generation uh, of orphans uh, or of uh, uh, fathers and mothers who lost. Uh, their children. So the nature of the response, yes, uh, is important. Uh, and I think that I'm not saying something which is that sort of dissimilar to what the United States has been saying. And frankly, I've also expressed my concern that as a European Union, collectively, we have not been able to, to come up with uh, um, a more uh, sort of uh, measured uh, but also firm uh, conclusion when it comes to balancing uh, our support for Israel with our call um, for um, Israel to be careful in the way it uh, has reacted to this uh, horrific terrorist attack. Now, Greece historically was more pro-Palestinian, but I believe uh, in the 90s when your father was prime minister, it recognized Israel. And in a sense, it's its sort of orientation has changed a little bit. Can you talk about that? And I would say I would say it has significantly changed. Um, um, Greece was actually the last country, the last European country, to recognize the state of Israel. It only happened uh, in 1990, actually, as you said, as you pointed out by my father. And we've established a very strong strategic partnership uh, with uh, Israel that uh, goes beyond security and defense. Uh, we have a strong economic uh, partnership. We have significant Israeli investment uh, in Greece, for example, in real estate. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's what friends are for. Friends are here to actually tell their friends what they think, you know, their, you know, their opinion uh, is or, uh, or um, 
uh, should be. So in that sense, Greece has clearly moved away from a rather unbalanced position during the 80s. Those were the, you know, the years of uh, the first phase of Greek populism under the socialists. Uh, um, uh, and right now, I think uh, most parties recognize us uh, as a pillar of stability uh, in a rather uh, unstable part of, uh, of the world. And we want to make sure that we leverage uh, this role to do good. Mm. When you say that's what friends are for, could Greece or the EU be doing more to be a broker to bring the two sides together? Uh, maybe that's uh, something that will need to be discussed when this phase of the conflict uh, is, uh, is over. And I do hope that this happens as quickly uh, as, um, as possible, because at, at the end of the day, unless one uh, um, addresses the, the root cause of the, of the problem, uh, which is a political uh, solution to uh, the Palestinian plight and two states uh, living side by side uh, in, uh, in peace, um, uh, uh, then uh, uh, the whole sort of regional alliances that have been uh, formed, uh, whose raison d'etre uh, is or claims to be, because sometimes there, um, one cannot argue that all the parties are totally honest in what they say, uh, the support for the Palestinian cause. I mean, one has to address the root cause of the, uh, uh, of the problem. And I would like Europe uh, to play a more active role uh, once uh, this phase of the conflict is over. Mm. So let me take that as a segue to go to Europe, which has its own war. And, you know, the theme at WEF this week is rebuilding trust. And we're in a moment where trust in global institutions is very low. There's a clear north-south divide on both of these conflicts where it almost seems like there's one part of the world that makes a certain set of arguments and another part of the world which has a different set of sympathies and often feels left out. With that backdrop, what's your sense of where you see the war in Ukraine headed? and, you know, NATO's role, especially given that Greece is part of NATO? Well, let me first of all speak on behalf of, uh, of, of my country. Greece has been unequivocal in its support for Ukraine and uh, from the very beginning. Uh, and we've offered support, uh, um, not just diplomatic support, but also uh, military support. And we continue to do so because this fight uh, really, really um, uh, matters. Uh, but and. Uh, for Greece, I, I do need to point out that this was not such an obvious decision given the strong historical and cultural ties that we had with the Russian people, and we have nothing to separate with the Russian people. The problem is not the Russian people, it's the Russian leadership uh, and the horrible decisions uh, that they took to uh, attack uh, Ukraine. Uh, and I would argue that there's an additional reason uh, for Greece to um, uh, support Ukraine, and this has to do um, uh, with the fact that what happens in Ukraine will reverberate beyond Ukraine. Uh, and we live uh, in a neighborhood where, in the past, and I make a distinction between previous behavior and current behavior, we've also been the subject of aggressive behavior by our large uh, uh, eastern uh, uh, neighbor. And if uh, uh, anyone who thinks that uh, um, uh, the international order uh, can be challenged by by, by force, gets its uh, get, gets his way, then this creates a very very dangerous uh, 
president, uh, and it's not just you know Taiwan. There are other places in the world that uh, would fall into a similar uh, category. Now, I think Europe overall has been remarkably united when it comes to Ukraine. Yes, um, if you look at the bulk of the military support, it has still come from uh, from the U.S. But even achieving this political alliance has not been obvious. We've been able to do so. I think by the next European Council, we will agree uh, on the financial support for Ukraine, which is going to be significant. We're talking about 50 billion euros uh, over uh, four years. I think we will overcome the obstacles of the one country that did not make it possible to achieve this agreement uh, at uh, the previous um, uh, council. And we will continue to, uh, to support uh, Ukraine in spite of the uh, in spite of the fatigue um, uh, and in spite of the fact that uh, the war in Ukraine does not uh, maybe occupy the same amount of time when it comes to media coverage. Mm. What do you make of uh, the sanctions uh, regime so far on Russia? Because Russia seems to have been able to, you know, on the one hand it has been hurt by sanctions, but on the other hand it sort of morphed into a wartime economy. And there's also a, a Greek connection here. I believe Greek ships have been involved in uh, sort of transporting Russian fuel, for example, which has made the price cap a little bit harder to manage. Well, as far as Greek shipping is concerned, uh, we have been uh, very careful to communicate to our ship owners that they need to adhere to the international sanctions regime. And uh, they have done so within, uh, of course, the... Um, uh, what has been agreed, what, what they can do and what they uh, cannot do. Now, in terms of sanctions, yes, I think you're right that uh, the Russian economy has proven to be more resilient than we thought, but this does not mean that Russia is not paying a very heavy price uh, when it comes to its economy. And I think that uh, a wartime economy is essentially eroding uh, the long-term uh, possibility of, uh, of Russia to return to a path of sustainable growth. So there is pain in, uh, in Russia, and that is why uh, we are sticking uh, to the sanctions. Uh, and it is a one you know, economic tool which we have at our disposal, and that is why we need to do more to ensure that there is no, uh, no evasion of sanctions to the extent that this is possible. But what, uh, what concerns me is what you pointed out, that this uh, narrative of what is right and what is wrong does not seem to resonate as much as we thought it would uh, to a big part of the world, especially to the global uh, south, where uh, our, uh, our arguments, as right as they are, uh, sometimes uh, may seem to be um, uh, uh, rather hollow. And why uh, do you think that's the case? Well, uh, I mean, uh, there are historical legacies. Uh, there is a colonial past for many countries. Greece does not have a colonial past. So in that sense, uh, when we talk to countries of the global south, I think sometimes we have um, more credibility. It's probably easier for us to make the case uh, than it is for uh, other countries who can be accused uh, of double standards due to their historical uh, behavior. Mm. I know you're headed to India next month, for example. Um, but, you know, countries of the global south, such as India, it's not just um, a, an antagonism towards former colonial powers, but it's also a general collective sense that their wars, their problems are, they don't get as much attention uh, in the West. And, you know, in as much as you, you know all of these things, how do you address it? How do you better communicate with them about this? Uh, uh, first of all, uh, we need to overcome what one could label sort of the, the Davos arrogance that, mm. you know, people who gather here, I mean, 
representatives uh, of the sort of uh, liberal elites, primarily from Europe and the United States, that we are the ones who know how to solve all the problems uh, of the uh, of the world. I think this is something that you know occasionally really upsets um, uh, the the countries of the global south that are emerging as uh, as, as global uh, powers. Uh, and of course, if you look at the international uh, arrangement, international institutions, the you know the post World War II order, it simply does not reflect the reality of today's world. So acknowledging that reality is a very good start to at least be able to, to talk to these countries by also communicating to them that we take their concerns and their resentments and their sort of their, their peculiarities, the stage they are in their own growth cycle very, very seriously. Mm. Let's take another example of a country that sits on the cusp of East and West. Uh, Turkey, a country that Greece, of course, has tussled with in a variety of fora, but also at NATO. Um, do you think that Turkey will be a spoiler um, you know, in the coming months as discussions about Ukraine joining the alliance against him? Um, well, first of all, we need to um, overcome the Swedish um, right. hurdle, uh, and I'm reasonably optimistic that this could happen. Why so? Um, uh, relatively soon. I mean, the, uh, the relative decision has been tabled to the Turkish parliament, the National uh, Assembly, and I would hope that uh, this uh, um, uh, is overcome uh, sooner rather than later, the stronger, uh, you know, the, uh, the more countries, especially countries that share, our, you know, countries such as Sweden that, you know, clearly share our values, join the alliance, the stronger the alliance. Um, and will be, and you know, we've had a complicated relationship uh, with Turkey. Um, during my first term, we've had our very, very difficult uh, moments. Uh, but since uh, the Turkish earthquake, we have made an honest effort uh, to build bridges. Uh, you sent them a lot of aid in their darkest Yes, hour. we did. We were the first uh, to fly into uh, the areas that were struck by what was a catastrophic uh, earthquake. I've met President Erdogan three times since I won my re-election and he won uh, his um, uh, re-election. And we have uh, set out uh, a roadmap that, uh, uh, first of all, addresses, I think, uh, legitimate concerns by, uh, by Greece that uh, uh, sort of the aggressive uh, rhetoric that uh, Turkey had assumed in the past does not lead us anywhere. So we need to lower the temperature and, and the tension. Uh, and this is a precondition to address our main dispute with Turkey, which is the delimitation of maritime zones in the Aegean and the Eastern Mediterranean. But even if we do not succeed to resolve this problem, which has been uh, an outstanding issue for more than you know, 40 years, we can still agree to live uh, in peace side by side and build on a positive agenda. For example, we have uh, obtained the agreement of the European Commission to allow um, uh, Turkish citizens to travel without a visa to 10 Greek islands for seven days. Uh, these are the islands of the Eastern Aegean. This is particularly important uh, for Turkey. It's particularly important for islands, uh, for our islands, because essentially they can sustain tourism industry 12 months a year, because obviously the Turkish coast is very close um, to the Greek islands. We can work together. We have to work together on migration. Greece has been rather successful in managing the migration problem, unlike many other European countries, by imposing uh, and implementing a tough but fair migration policy, but we need to cooperate with Turkey because uh, we need to stop the boats before they actually leave the 
Turkish coast. And we've had indications that uh, uh, Turkey has been much more cooperative over the past months. Again, uh, I'm not naive. We've seen um, some pretty dramatic changes in Turkish policy over the past uh, years. But uh, I'd like to be an, uh, an optimist and I'd like to build upon the positive um, steps that both our countries uh, have taken over the past um, uh, months. Mm. One last question on Ukraine and Europe. Um, President Zelensky was here this week. Uh, he's putting forward a peace plan that dozens of countries around the world have um, sort of signed up for as well, in which, you know, Russia essentially uh, abandons the land that it's taken in Ukraine, pays for reparations. Uh, Russia, of course, uh, is nowhere close to agreeing to any of these maximalist uh, demands. But what I want to ask you is, when you hear Ukraine discussing a peace plan, do you feel like this is the year where some sort of negotiated settlement is a possibility? Or will this still be settled on the battlefield? I'm not sure that I see an end to the conflict, uh, unfortunately, uh, anytime soon. And that you is, just said you're an optimist. Uh, well, I'm, uh, I'm an optimist uh, uh, when it comes to my general um, perspective. But uh, uh, in this particular case, uh, yeah. I think we still have some time to go before uh, a, a serious negotiated settlement can be discussed, and that is why it is so important in the short term uh, to continue to provide support to Ukraine, both military support but also financial support, uh, because at the end of the day we've said from the beginning that uh, if a peace is to be reached, it has to be reached on, uh, on Ukraine's terms, or at least with Ukraine in a strong position to negotiate uh, the peace that it's, uh, it considers uh, uh, appropriate. Uh, uh, and uh, in order to do so, we need to continue to support the country. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance in addition to a range of other benefits, including our magazine. Sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Add a little curiosity into your routine with TED Talks Daily, the podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday. In less than 15 minutes a day, you'll go beyond the headlines and learn about the big ideas shaping your future. Coming up, how AI will change the way we communicate, how to be a better leader, and more. Listen to TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about elections. This is a year of big elections around the world. Some 4 billion people will head to the polls. I think it's five of the six biggest democracies have elections. And you've just had yours, so you can... Well, we had it out of the way. We, we had our elections in 23. So. Right, exactly. So, so you... Although we have European elections in 24. That's right. Forget That's that. Right. Yeah. But you can watch this year with a bit more calm, um, as everyone else is anxious about their elections. But what is your sense of the global mood for nationalism and populism and you're a center-right leader who seems to have bucked the trend um, globally in that uh, you were able to come back to power. Incumbents don't often come back to power unless you're thinking about India or Bangladesh. What is your sense of the message that sends to the world? First of all, I remember uh, sitting at, uh, at a similar panel last year Everyone at the time was very bullish about uh, the Greek economy, 
there was, of course, the outstanding issue of the Greek elections, and uh, I was making the case at the time that we have a reasonable chance of winning again, uh, and we did so, uh, which means that uh, as far as Greece is concerned, we now have four years ahead of us. We have an absolute majority in Parliament, a very strong mandate to implement uh, uh, ambitious reforms to continue and maintain uh, uh, sort of high growth rates and really change the um, the fabric of the country and make it a true European country. We spend uh, a lot of time historically trying to become part of Europe. Then we spend a decade trying to remain in Europe. Uh, and now uh, is a real time to become Europe. Uh, and by becoming Europe, I mean true convergence uh, with Europe on all the uh, important metrics that, uh, that, that we look at. So Greece right now, uh, unlike many other countries, is in a good position in the sense that there is no significant uh, political or geopolitical uh, risk uh, uh, for the foreseeable future. But I think you're right to point out that uh, the Greek um, story holds some uh, interesting, uh, um, uh, maybe one can draw some interesting conclusions from what happened uh, in Greece. Why did, we, why did we win again? We managed to increase our share of the vote. And as you pointed out, in difficult times, this is not uh, obvious uh, for incumbent um, uh, governments. Uh, we essentially delivered on our commitments. This is all about trust. This Davos is about trust. Uh, what is trust, really? Um, uh, at the core, trust is uh, maintaining the contract that you sign with citizens when they you know, elect you to power. They elect you to power because you tell them that you will do specific things. And if you deliver on what you told them uh, you, you would do, then uh, chances are that they will reward you. So over four years, we both delivered on our commitments. And of course, we managed rather successfully multiple uh, crises. But at the same time, one needs to be very careful in this environment where everyone is pointing the finger at populists, uh, not to alienate um, the people who actually vote for them, because some of these grievances uh, are actually very real. People f feel that they're left behind by globalization. The fact that, you know, um, wages have not really increased. Inflation is really uh, hitting lower income uh, households. So these are you know, real grievances. What you need to explain to people is that there are no obvious solutions and that what uh, is presented as, a, as an easy solution usually uh, is uh, uh, a solution that cannot be put into, uh, into practice. So when, when it comes to, to our story, we delivered on our commitments. Uh, we focused on the economy. At the end of the day, it is the economy that determines, uh, I think, the outcome of uh, elections. And uh, Greece in 2023, in spite of all the difficulties, found itself in a much better place than it was in 2019. Whether you look at uh, growth rates, whether you look at uh, unemployment, uh, uh, job creation, uh, investment. Uh, I remember the first time I came to Davos in 2020 as prime minister, I had a really tough time making the case why foreign investors should invest in Greece. Some were bold enough to do so, and I think they were very happy with uh, their choice. Now the, the case is, is much uh, easier because we have uh, delivered results. And at the end of the day, I think people are basically rational. They look at what is good for them uh, and, and for their uh, family. And in that sense, uh, they, they rewarded us uh, with a, a second uh, mandate. Mm. It sounds very easy when you put it like that. Um, but, you know, I mean, even in Greece, um, you're not, it's not like you don't have a far right. It's not like you don't have a far left. These are forces that exist there that you have to combat and you have to put the case to the people why a centrist party is a better alternative. What lessons are there for 
other countries in Europe and even around the world, because this is a year, again, that people are very worried about the rise of either the far right or the far left. You know, in, in political science, we frequently use the term triangulation. Uh, and I think what we have uh, achieved in Greece is sort of a new form of triangulation by which we have, we are rather liberal when it comes to the economy. So we did cut taxes. Uh, we, we deregulated, we grew the economy by unleashing the forces of private entrepreneurship. At the same time, we were very present when it was necessary, especially during, um, uh, uh, during COVID. So I think we followed a successful economic policy. Uh, I think we were responsible patriots in the sense that uh, we protected our borders when Turkey tried uh, um, to instrumentalize migration back in March 2020. Uh, and uh, we also uh, were rather effective in managing migration. So to those citizens who uh, have uh, sort of greater interest in these, in these themes, we take those boxes, while at the same time, we were also rather liberal uh, and progressive when it came to our social policies, really focusing on issues of income inequality, uh, supporting people rigorously through means-tested uh, um, uh, policies, so really focused on those who were uh, in, in greater need, and also bringing forward um, uh, policies uh, which are not always associated with centre-right parties. For example, now um, we are discussing in Greece a marriage equality. You wouldn't necessarily expect a centre-right party uh, to be championing uh, this reform. So I think this form of um, uh, triangulation, focusing on economic uh, uh, growth, be responsible patriots, while at the same time be progressive when it comes to uh, topics where one needs to be aligned with how society itself progresses has worked well for Greece. But again, there is no um, uh, magic formula and uh, every country has its own peculiarities. Political systems are different. Electoral systems uh, are, are different. But this is certainly a strategy that has worked well for us. And I will be making the case that this is also sort of a strategy that needs to be adopted by the European People's Party uh, when we fight um, uh, uh, the next European elections uh, in a few months um, uh, from now, and we do hope that we will again be uh, the, the largest uh, party in the European Parliament. Let me add one more angle to the triangle, um, and that is um, AI, which has come up in discussions all week in a variety of forms. When it comes to elections, obviously there are immense fears about deep fakes and you know, mis- and disinformation, election interference, cyber crimes. Uh, obviously, Greece has just gone through an election, so this isn't an immediate concern for you, but how are you thinking about what, what countries need to be doing and how they should work with companies uh, to safeguard their people and their democracies? You touch upon a topic that is extremely relevant, uh, and of course there are no magic uh, solutions, but we need to form uh, an alliance that will include uh, tech companies and, uh, and civil societies to, first of all, educate public opinion about uh, the risk of what actually can happen through these uh, uh, deep fakes and then find ways to uh, identify them. Um, uh, and there were various uh, tools that were also discussed in Davos on how, on how actually uh, to do that. But the threat is, uh, is, is very, very real when it comes to election uh, interference. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, you know, technology may be a step ahead of us 
And I am concerned about this uh, sort of discontinuity between the level of understanding of the tech leaders and those who are developing these complex algorithms and the policymakers um, who are responsible for regulating this technology uh, because these um, uh, technological issues are uh, are so complex, I'm afraid that this gap is, is not narrowing, it is widening. So we need, that's one of the good things of Davos is that we sit at the same table and, and, and we share concerns, but essentially we need a new alliance between governments and the big tech companies to, to address this, uh, this topic. Uh, and uh, if I may add, this is not just necessarily about you know, playing defense, which is you know, protecting the integrity of our democratic process. It may also about being playing offense, that is, how do we use AI uh, to make participatory democracy more effective uh, uh, and other, other ways to engage with people in terms of uh, making the public discourse uh, more relevant and us taking uh, more, uh, you know, the, the views of the public more into consideration by using uh, artificial intelligence uh, uh, tools. This will also, you know, build more trust in the technologies and uh, help us, you know, bridge this uh, trust gap, which is uh, still very much relevant. If you just look at the number of people who um, uh, who vote in the elections, uh, this should be a reason of concern to all of us. I mean, we're currently in the Greek uh, parliament uh, presenting legislation. For the first time, we're actually able to do it because we uh, overcame a, you know, a supermajority uh, barrier that will allow Greeks uh, abroad to actually vote uh, in the European uh, elections and use absentee ballot and actually extending the same possibility to also uh, Greeks um, um, uh, in the country. If you have, for example, a young kid, um, we have elections in June who's uh, you know, working in one of our islands. Uh, he cannot or she cannot uh, participate in the elections. They can't just leave for the weekend and go uh, and go vote. I want to give them the possibility um, uh, to um, uh, to mail in their their ballot and vote in, in this way. So we need to uh, also try to really understand what is it that makes people not participate in mm. the uh, electoral process because if your people who participate, the less legitimacy at the end of the day we have to implement our uh, policies for which we are elected. Mm. Speaking about elections and legitimacy, I think one person who isn't at Davos this week has loomed large in the news, and that's former President Donald Trump in America. How are you thinking, not just from a Greek perspective, but from a European perspective, um, how are you thinking about the possibility of his re-election and what that might do for a range of other things that Greece is involved in, whether it's Ukraine and NATO or the Middle East? I thought we had run out of time. <laughs> you know, I can't see the clock. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, I'm, I'm, you know, let me... Let me I've worked with both President Trump and, and President uh, uh, Biden, and at the end of the day, it would be, I think, rather inappropriate for any foreign leader to express their views on what is fundamentally, you know, a, a democratic uh, um, uh, process. And uh, we will, uh, you know, as Europe, have to work with whoever, um, uh, you know, the American uh, people choose to elect uh, as uh, their next um, uh, president. And I think sometimes, you know, uh, expressing uh, sort of op opinions uh, um, uh, or sort of presenting, you know, doomsday scenarios or very optimistic uh, scenarios, uh, you know, sometimes has the opposite effect. Mm. Uh, people don't like to be preached and they don't like to be told what they, uh, what they should be doing. We may all have our uh, preferences, but uh, uh, I think it's probably best uh, to keep it uh, 
to ourselves. You are more diplomatic than Jamie Dimon. Yeah. Prime Minister, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much for having me. And that was Kyriakos Mitsotakis, the Prime Minister of Greece. You heard me reference Jamie Dimon there, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, and the reason why I did is he made a little bit of a splash this week here in Davos, where he assessed President Donald Trump's record and said things weren't that bad. Lots more coming up on FP Live, not least the election results in Taiwan. Next week, I will speak with Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy, the ranking Democrat in the powerful Select China Committee, for his take on how the results might affect U.S. relations with China. The podcast version of FP Live is produced by Rosie Julin, and the executive producer of FP Live and Video is Tal Alroy. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. 
like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.